Built Not Born, Episode 2. I am Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guest today is David Kaplan. Dave is Chief Operating Officer at Watchbox. Watchbox is the largest buyer, seller, trader, the everything of pre-owned luxury watches in the world. Dave is a a super creative guy. Uh, He's a big thinker and he has a phenomenal marketing mind. We get into some funny stories at his time at Duke, why a marketer first has to build trust before they do anything else, and the importance of having a backup plan uh, in case the market goes against you, or in in this case, the world, COVID-19, goes against you like it did all of us last year. Uh, We discuss how Dave first got into watches and what baseball can teach us and our kids about life. What I like about Dave, uh, Dave is such a humble guy. Uh, He's self-deprecating, and he's surprisingly a great listener, which you don't always seem from a person in his position. You actually hear think Dave's listening to you. You actually believe it when you're talking to him, because he is. And uh, when you speak with him, you just feel heard, which makes the conversation so much more honest and real. Uh, He's really easy to talk to. So thank you for being here. Really appreciate you listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool people and interviews to come, like the one today. So please enjoy my conversation with David Kaplan, Chief Operating Officer at Watchbox. And remember, life is built, not born. Hey, Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Thanks for uh, having me. For some of the people that may not be familiar with your work, who are you and what do you do? So the, the who are you question is, a, is an interesting one because I, I assume you're asked it professionally, but I, but I always like to start off that, um, you know, I'm a, f- a husband and father of two. I think those are the most important things for me. Professionally, I am uh, currently chief operating officer of Watchbox. We are the world's largest buyer, seller, and trader of luxury pre-owned watches. We were founded out of a uh, 100-year-old family-owned business in, uh, in Philadelphia called Gopper Jewelers. And um, launched a launched a separate pre-owned division four years ago that has grown to be the the biggest in the world at what we do. In my time here, I helped launch the launch the business and built out our initial technology. Served as chief marketing officer for the for for three years, and then uh, about a year ago, stepped into the chief operating officer's seat, and I I helped optimize our operations um, in in all different departments all around the world. I want to get into the watches. I'm going to do a deep dive into that. But before we get started there, where did you grow up? So I grew up on uh, Long Island, a town called East Meadow, suburban New York. Uh, not too, too different than the, uh, the town we live in, in uh, outside of Philadelphia today, where, where we are is a little more upscale than where I was. I'd say a middle, middle class suburban post-World War II uh, kind of town. You know, a lot of lot of different ethnic uh, ethnic communities grew up. You know, Jews, Italians, Irish. You know, it's a great great place to go grow up. Uh, some somewhere along the way, I think I lost the New York accent. But um, if you get me on the right day, you know, maybe I still I still can whip it out. What's the most vivid memory of your childhood? The most vivid memory of my childhood. That's a good. That's a good question. So. For me, you, you never get back the sense of like 
freedom, fun, endless possibilities that we had in high school. So I know for a lot of people, high school is a challenging experience. You're growing into who you are. And I certainly face my sense of, you know, my own sort of challenges growing up. But but at the same time, I all I can remember is life being an open book. I had a, I had a great set of friends. Um, I did well in school. I, I was you know applying to great colleges. You know, life was was open back then, and, I, and I'd say that's that's the most, you know, the the, the feeling I get when I think about um, that time growing up. What's the dinner table look like when you're growing up? You're ten years old. What's going on there? I grew up in a uh, very typical for the '80s, sort of a a uh, single parent household. Um, my parents divorced when I was in third grade. Um, my mom you know, went to, went to work, worked on wall street, was a bit of a trailblazer for, for women. I always find someone's childhood, even though they're completely different people and it's almost like another life, there's elements or there's principles or perspectives that they carry forward 30, 40 years later that you could see, like, I can see where that came from. From Long Island, you wind up in Cameron arena, you wind up at Duke. How'd you go from Long Island to Duke? How'd that happen? Um, so I mean, education was very important in my family, my community. You know, everybody has things that they're good at. I was good at school. So, uh, you know, I was the kind of kid that could, um, you know, just sort of knew how to, I knew how to take tests. I knew how to manage myself in, in a classroom setting. So, so I always got, I always got good grades and, and I did well on standardized tests. And when it came time to, to go to school, um, you know, sort of, I was pushed for the sky to be the sky to be the limit, and and you know, based on my grades, based on um, based on how I had done in school, I had I had super high um, aspirations for myself. Duke at the time was kind of an interesting place for a kid from Long Island to go to. I I was the first person from my high school ever to get into Duke. Like the, we had people every you know one or two or three people every year that would go to an Ivy League school, but. But heading down to down south was kind of a big deal. So nobody had ever gone to Duke before. But at the same time, it was uh, the late the late '80s, and Duke was starting their run of uh, of Final Fours. hadn't won a basketball national championship, but had gotten a big national profile. Um, I think was ranked number five in the U.S. News and World Report. So so I put I put my application and went to visit went to visit the uh, the school. It was one of only a few schools I went to visit. And just fell fell in love with it. Like I could instantly see myself there. And then it turns out, as it turns out, you know, sometimes you get lucky. So Duke was was out of the schools I wanted to go to was the only one I got into. So you know, at the time I wanted to go to Penn. I, I wanted to go to Northwestern, and um, and didn't get into those schools. And sometimes you know the right things happen. Uh, and and as luck would have it, I I got into the the best school I applied to was the was the you know what main one I got into. And, um, you know, going there certainly changed, changed the course of life. Can you imagine today Duke being your fallback school? Like, it's amazing. Like, I, I, I couldn't imagine trying to get in there right now. It's how hard, how hard well, it is. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and we have kids going through that process right now. And just to see what's happened to the college admissions process at selective schools, there's, there's I don't know, there's no way I get in today. <laughs> All right. Give me your best story from the student section. That is just one of the best things in college sports. My my best college basketball stories probably involves like mischief around basketball games. So, what was cool about 
uh, Duane still is cool about Duke basketball is there's no such thing as a ticket for an undergrad student. You don't have to buy tickets. You don't get assigned tickets. The, the only way you gain entrance is by waiting in line. And for a preseason game against, you know, a one double A AA or, you know, a lower division school, you might have to wait in line for 30 minutes. For a North Carolina game, you might have to wait in line for two weeks, literally, and, and camp out. So, so you can, you know, you can decide how bad you want to go to any given game. And so, you know, I'd say I, I probably went to 80% of games while I was there, um, based, you know, based on the amount of time you're willing to put in. But it was, there was always sort of fun stuff and trying to get into games. So a couple couple of my favorite memories. And uh, Marissa, my wife, hates this one because when she was a freshman, she got there and was all excited to camp out for Duke. And it was uh, it was Michigan game her freshman year, my junior year. And she camped out for several nights, call it a week. So she slept out in a tent, you know, didn't have the comforts of home while I sat across the street in my, you know, in my dorm room. And the time comes, she gets into the game. She's all excited. And uh, I walk across the street with about 10 minutes to go before game time, looked down on the ground, picked up a ticket stub of somebody who had come out to smoke a cigarette, walked right in, bumped into her into the student section. And, you know, and, and we had a great time during that game. We had uh, other friends that dressed up as the Domino's pizza guys to sneak into games because there was Domino's, uh, Domino's did the pizza in the building. So those were some of the fun times I remember. Probably the other cool memory I have about basketball was uh, the day Shaq came and played at Cameron. So he was on LSU when I was there and uh, I got his autograph. I was pledging a fraternity at the time. I got his autograph in my pledge book. It was like, you know, an assignment I, assignment I got. And standing next to him, I was probably on the fourth bleacher Neither you or I are tall, <laughs> are tall guys. I heard um, that rumor. <laughs> yeah, I was standing on the uh, standing on the bleachers, and and uh, you know I was third or fourth bleacher up, and he still he still uh, towered over me. So that that was a that was a pretty cool basketball memory. And then beyond that, um, two national championships while we were there, um, I got to go to one addition, one Final Four in person in uh, in Charlotte my senior year, where we lost to Arkansas. But getting to be be in two of those games, uh, President Clinton was at one of the games. We had to go past go through Secret Service to to get into the game. You know, it's, it it just helped make for an amazing college experience. There's nothing like finding the ticket on the floor. Uh, that's the best, and that's that's better be lucky than good. Well, what, what was even better than finding the ticket was the look on Marissa's face after she had camped out for for a couple of weeks. So you're at Duke, then you wind up. Uh, Wharton. How do you how do you go from Duke to Wharton? How, what brought about that? Coming out of Duke, I went into management consulting. So went through the um, on campus recruiting process, but ended ended up taking a uh, a job with Deloitte. Worked for uh, a couple years to build experience. I was part of their analyst program, where you were you know expected to go back to business school after two or three years. In fact, they paid for it and and, and supported you in. In going back to school, and uh, so got really good experience. Got to spend a couple of years working across lots of different big companies in in all regions. I was in the southeast, but in all different regions. So I worked in Texas, South Carolina, and then uh, and then went through the applications to uh, top business schools. Similar story to to undergrad. Um, the first year I applied, I applied to three schools, and Wharton was the only one I got in regular regular decision. It also turned out Marissa and I had been dating for a couple of years at the time. She got into med school in Philly at Penn. So the, the stars sort of aligned for us to start graduate school 
the same year at the same time. And that's how we got to Philly. Yeah, funny story with your wife, Marissa. She was a resident and working uh, a Thanksgiving holiday back in 2003 and at Penn. And that's the day our oldest Luca was born. We're pretty sure that she was one of the residents in the delivery room. We were kind of just working it backwards. She's like, I worked that day. Like she, she remembered yeah, she, yeah. she was with that. She was with that doctor uh, that who delivered the baby that day. And there was a bunch of residents running in and out of the room, and and they, it's all blur. But you remember there were multiple residents, and uh, she was one of them. That's that's a funny little. That uh, is really funny. I'd never heard that story. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's hysterical. So uh, what brought you wind up in Philly through for Wharton and your wife gets to uh, your, your wife goes to Penn for her training. Big leap forward. What brought you to watches? How did you get there? So I, I didn't have any any kind of material history with watches. So I wasn't wasn't a watch collector, owned a few watches. I can, I can talk about that a little bit you know, after business school had transitioned from my career in consulting to digital marketing and e-commerce. So I left Deloitte during the dot-com boom in, in uh, 2000 and, um, and got, into, got into e-commerce and spent several years taking businesses that were offline and, and migrating them online. And, um, and I had left my previous company and was looking for an entrepreneurial opportunity and uh, met Danny Goldberg, the owner of, of Goldberg Jewelers, who had a business that he had just started um, around luxury watch repair. And I knew nothing about watches, let alone watch repair. What I was able to learn was that um, watch repair was a very scarce commodity. So in order to provide repair services for high-end watches, you had to have access to parts. And in order to have access to parts, you had to have relationships with these large brands. It's not, it's not like, you know, like when you want to get, when you, if you wanted to open an auto repair shop, you can just go open a parts account with, with the parts supplier. If you want to repair watches, you have to have specially trained people that are that where the trainings controlled by the brands and have access to the parts. And very few people had that. And, and Danny had secured repair capacity and had built a little proof of concept where he had people mailing watches to him in, in Philadelphia through the mail and, and thought he could turn it into the business, into a business. And for me who had been in digital marketing, it was a chance to take a broader role. I could, I could run the business, the, the business unit myself, de deploy my marketing skills, but also gain broader experience. So I came into, I came into that business and was able to grow it from, you know, from very little to within a year, we were running at a, like a $5 million run rate. And uh, we had a thousand watches a month coming, coming through the building. And what we realized was while this was a scaling business, the profitability wasn't going to be there. So uh, we realized that, so, okay, we have a $5 million business. If we make this a $20 million business, the, the scale wasn't going to generate the margins we needed. At the same time, he had, he had this other business in, in listing pre-owned watches online that with you know, no technology or marketing support was growing like crazy. So we sat down after a couple of years and he said, I want you to come and help, help me build this business. And that's how I came over to the side of buying, selling, and trading luxury watches. What I came to realize was that is, is that watches are a really interesting product category. You know, even though I wasn't a watch collector, if you if you open a valet case that's in my night table and it had been in my night table my whole whole life, you'll find a 1985 Keith Haring limited edition Swatch that you know somebody had given me and I wore every day probably in 1985 86 for for years and and you know was convinced it was going to become a collector's item and and stash it away somewhere you also find the Movado that my mother gave me for my bar mitzvah 
that you know was the first expensive piece of of jewelry that I that I had every day I would wear at the time the tag Heuer that Marissa gave me when we got engaged. So you know here's a non-watch guy that without even thinking about it had assembled selection of of watches that while not super expensive were intensely personal and all held distinct memories for me. And I think that's what watches do in our culture, especially for men who. Uh, who there are not a lot of who, who well men one tend to collect things men love to collect things and number two there's not a lot of socially acceptable jewelry that um, that men wear so watches are, are one way that men express their individuality over the last nine years that I've been here developed a huge appreciation for for watches and for what they mean to to mean what they mean to people what do you think a watch says about somebody well it, it can be as as different as the person who's wearing it is. So if you, you know, if you look at luxury watches, the space we operate in, you know, nobody needs their watch to tell time anymore, right? And we've, we're, we've totally divorced the, the actual originally intended purpose of a watch from what people will need it for today. It is convenient to, to have the time and date on your wrist, but then, then go into your pocket for your phone. But beyond that, you know, you don't need your watch to tell time. So, so there's lots of different reasons people still choose to wear watches and, the, and, and reasons why the watch market, especially the luxury watch market, is, is still growing at crazy rates in the, in the days of the Apple Watch. At the high-end level of the market, the brand, you can use the brand to make a statement about who you are. So in, in uh, big cities like New York, where people don't drive around a, a lot and don't have expensive cars, they may want to use their watch to, to say, hey, this is... This is who I am. This is how much money I have. This is my status in life by wearing a watch. The people who are really into it have an appreciation either for the art or the mechanics of the watch. You know, watches were probably the, one of the original high-tech products. Um, if, if you think about what's involved in taking, you know, taking something as small as going to fit on your wrist and as the wrist and as, as uh, thin as, you know, a few millimeters and, and, and pack all these complications, not only does it tell you the time and date, it can can be a stopwatch. It can show the moon phase. It can it can change the calendar and know when it's a leap year. It can chime the date to you. Um, it's the original microengineering high tech product. And and there's space age materials in these things today. So silicon and high tech lubricants. So it really is a high tech product in a in a in a low tech package, if you will. And I think the people who are really into watches respect it for that. And then there's just the artistry side of it. I heard somebody say once that. Once the camera was invented, the purpose of art became very different. But you know, before there was a camera, the important thing about art was how real it looked. And then after you could have a camera, it wasn't such a big deal to have a realistic image of something. Then art took on a different purpose. And I feel like watches have sort of come to the same place because you don't really need it to tell time anymore. And so it, it becomes a you know, personal statement or an artistic statement. And you, and you see watch brands and, and models really differentiating on design. At what point did you realize it was going pre-owned? That was the way to go all in. Like, what, what point did you realize that's the pivot you had to make? So, so the the pre-owned business, which which is Watchbox, grew out of uh, Godberg Jewelers, which was an authorized dealer for new for new watches. Um, and what the, there's a number of trends that came together to make this successfully happen for us. One was around just the structure of the way the watch industry works. At Godberg, we're at, at the time we were authorized dealers for 50 watch brands, including Rolex and Patek Philippe, which are the, the most dominant brands in the, in the industry. And when you're an entrepreneur looking to grow your business, your growth is constrained by the number of watches you're able to get from these brands. 
So, you know, as a Rolex dealer, there's, there's so many watches they're going to allocate to Philadelphia and we're the Rolex dealer in Philadelphia and the value our relationship with these brands tremendously. And, but at the same time, they dictate what your growth is with pre-owned watches. Our growth was only dictated by how many watches we could successfully source process convert to, you know, recondition to like new condition and, and, and then post-market and sell. So it really put us in control of our own destiny. I think we also came about this right at a, at a time where the re-commerce trend is, is, um, is big. So for environmental reasons, for sustainability reasons, uh, people are increasingly comfortable and looking to to buy pre-owned assets. So it's, it's really, it's expanded our markets for, for many watch, for many watches. It's, it's cheaper to buy a pre-owned watch than it is to buy a new watch. So it expands the, the luxury watch market to more, to more buyers at the same time for many watches, the hottest watches, you can't get them new. If you walk into our store in Philadelphia, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to get popular, popular models from Rolex and other brands. And the secondary market's the only way, way you're going to find that, that, uh, Rolex Daytona without without waiting a long time to build a good relationship with an authorized dealer. Uh, the secondary market is, is a great way to do that. And so we sort of hit this space at the right time. I think we had some visionary leadership by uh, Danny Godberg to, to take us there. And, and we were able to launch this, this business separate from Godberg that's, uh, you know, that we've been able to grow to a global, a global pre-owned platform. You know, there's definitely a timing aspect, but you got to have the guts and the uh, vision to see something and to hit it and have the guts to jump in at that moment. And it uh, looks like you guys did that. That's phenomenal. What advice would you give someone who's maybe online for the first time looking for their first luxury watch? They're making their first investment. What advice would you give them? Biggest advice is you're, you're buying the seller. So as much as you're buying a watch, you're buying the seller. A watch is a, is a different kind of purchase than an apparel item or, or, or something like that because the, the watch needs to work for several years, several years uh, after you buy it. And as a, as a consumer, you're really unable to assess the quality of what you've purchased just by looking at it. Um, you, you know, a watch can look fine on the outside, uh, you know, either be improperly serviced, have have inauthentic parts inside of it, you won't know that until months or years down the line. So if, 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 uh, if you don't deal with a reputable seller that you can trust has validated the authenticity and the functioning of the watch before you buy it and will stand behind the watch if somebody uh, if something goes wrong after, then a few hundred or even a thousand dollars you might save on a purchase price it can get eaten up really quickly uh, down the road, but because you have a watch that's not worth what you thought it was. So first advice is to buy the seller. Second advice is, is, is really to buy what you love. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, trendy watches right now that are selling uh, on the secondary market for sometimes 20, 30, 50, hundred percent over their retail price. And people are buying these watches for financial reasons rather than to wear them, enjoy them and love them. And while that's exciting and it's good for our business and it adds a fun trading aspect, at, at the end of the day, you know, watches are made to be worn, passed down from generation to generation. So don't buy something that you, know, you wouldn't want to wear. So as a chief operating officer, what's the first 30 minutes of your day look like? So I, I'm, I'm a, a pretty habitual person. So my, my day starts like the second my feet drop out of bed and it's, to, and it's to troll through all the emails that came in overnight. We have offices in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. You know, there's not a morning that goes by that, that 
there's not something needing needing my attention that comes in in the morning um, while while I was sleeping. So uh, so I, I try to triage urgent um, you know anything urgent from uh, from overseas before I even get in the shower. Then when I get into work, I've got you know I've got probably 30 tabs on my you know my browser that pop that that pop up and save every day, and you know I I. I sort of just check to make sure everything's working properly. So, you know, even though we have people that are responsible for the website and marketing, they're sort of key things that I like to physically see every morning and make sure they're working. And I use my, I use my browser tabs as a way to do that because virtually everything, everything we do is online. And, and that probably hits my first 30 minutes until, until the second, second cup of coffee kicks in. How do you stay in shape? How do you keep your health going? Uh, um, so you and I talk about this a, a lot. I, I, so I, I didn't, I didn't even think about staying in shape until I was in my late thirties, and and I started to realize that uh, I couldn't count on being young and healthy forever. Um, and you know, when when I was in my late thirties, I, I I like the, I, I got a cough just coincidentally that lasted like three months and had to go on steroids to get rid of it. And and I realized that well, probably if I were in better physical shape, I I um. I wouldn't, you know, I could deal with this kind of thing better. So I had some friends that got that got me into running, and we we set a goal to train for our first Broad Street run, which is a 10 mile run in Philadelphia. I think the largest 10 mile run in the country. 40,000 runners run it every year, and so you know, I remember we did I did the first three mile training run with these guys to to start that process of training, and you know, was dizzy, wheezing for two hours after the run and realized that I didn't, you know, I didn't want that. I don't like that feeling. I don't want that. I didn't want to be like that. So, so we, we did it. We trained for Broad Street Run, done it almost every year that, it, that it's been available since. And, and we trained for a half marathon. I probably did three or four half marathons along the way. I never felt, never felt the need so far to run any more than 13.1 miles. Like 13.2 would have been, would have been too much was happy, happy sort of where I was. And so I try, try to run at least once a week now. I, I'm not as into it as I was. And then I try to fill in during the week. We bought the Peloton before COVID kicked in. So we, we, we were in before the, the uh, Peloton crazinesses, but I didn't start using it until, until COVID kicked in. So, so now at least two additional times a week, I'll, I'll get myself up at you know, at six or earlier and, and get downstairs and, and, you know, get 20, 30 minutes in on the bike to make sure I stay in shape. How much does diet play into your health? How careful, what would your diet look like eating? Habits? Um, so, well, you, you, you know, this as much as, as anybody, but my, like Marissa and I have, have long been known for sort of strange, like taking on strange diets. We're in the Atkins Phase like 20 years ago to try to lose weight. Um, Marissa is a vegetarian. I was diagnosed with celiac uh, probably four years ago, so I so I don't eat so I don't eat gluten. A, a couple of years back, uh, I went uh, in addition to the 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 keto diet. I was I was over. I mean, in addition to the celiac diet, I went in. Uh, you know, I was 20 pounds, 20 30 pounds overweight, and um, went on a more or less ketogenic diet with, um, with intermittent fasting. So, so I don't eat 
typically until at least noon, um, at least noon or lunch in, in, during the during the day. A couple of days a week, I probably don't eat until dinner, and I just uh, I'll just have like bone broth or, or maybe maybe some some almonds or something like that, and then I, I give my body a, a a chance a chance to reset, and then and then I eat again at night. So I, I took probably thirty pounds off a few years ago doing that. And uh, I'm not as religious on the, the diet as I was, but I try to stick to the basic principles of, of giving myself a good 12 to 16 hours a day where I'm not eating, I try to keep sugar, out of, keep sugar out of my diet as much as I can. We read the obesity code a few, weeks, a few years ago, which, which really sort of changed our thinking on diet. I go to you sometimes with uh, the discussions we have. I mean, I learned stuff with you and Marissa, and you guys are always, I think, kind of on the cutting edge on, on stuff that's coming yeah, out. If, if it's a wacky food, if, it, if it's at least somewhat science-based, <laughs> yeah. a, a wacky food theory, we've, we've probably at least looked at it. You know, we, we jumped, I jumped on the Bulletproof coffee trend, and a lot of, a lot of these things are kind of similar um, around keeping sugar, out, you know, keeping sugar out of your diet and trying to use diet to, to, to biohack yourself. So. Okay. Yeah, I think I, I'm down two things are the enemy, sugar and ego. You knock the sugar and ego out, your life's much better. Um, how about when you were at your best, just think life's going awesome for you. Like they, your life is the best version of you. What are you doing? Good question. So I'd, I'd say balancing work and family. Uh, that's, that's something that's, 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 always, uh, that's always important to me. And it's important to, to me to to balance work and family. And sometimes I do a better job at that than others. But, you know, if I've gone too many days without having dinner with the family or uh, too many weekends spending, spending all day in front of the computer, then, then I don't feel uh, like I'm living my best. You know, at, at, at work, I think sleep, eating right, you know, working on exciting projects. So one, one of the things and for me, that's important in, in living my best, especially at work, is variety and working on exciting projects. I call it the, I call it the consultant's curse because I spent the first four years of my career um, consulting where you had every 12 weeks, you sort of moved on to a new project, new company, new challenge. I can tend to get stagnant and bored. I, I know when I first moved into a corporate job, when I started working on that second marketing plan, the first one was super exciting because it was the first one I ever did. But that second one was tough because I I've done this already. I try to keep things varied and moving and different. Uh, and, that, and that's what really keeps me motivated, excited, and, and focused on what I'm doing at work. What's the most exciting project you're working on now? In my role as COO, what I like about it is I get to dip my fingers and toes into every different department of the company. So it's, so, you know, whether it's marketing operations, strategic growth, M&A, you know, I, I get to, I get to sort of get involved in all of it. On the strategic side, I think one of the things we're thinking and learning about, and, and uh, you know, it's almost becoming cliche because you see it in the news so much is tokenization. So uh, I, I read with fascination these stories about digital art that sells for $68 million and um, NBA Top Shot video trading cards that are trading for hundreds of thousands of dollars and trying to you know, we, you know, we work in a, in a business where we sell watches that are a jewelry item, but they're also a tradable commodity and an alternative asset class that, that hold their value. And so trying to figure out how these new technologies and the ability to, to tokenize assets can, can have an impact on our business. So that's something we haven't made any investments or, um, or done anything in that space with the, 
the, the slight exception of, of working with a company called Rally Road, where they, they allow people to fractionally invest in, in uh, assets like watches or luxury cars or art. Um, but, but sort of thinking about how that can impact our business is, is pretty exciting. The other thing we're, we're looking to do is, is really grow our video content. Um, and, and podcasts, by the way, you know, we, we're big believers in content marketing. So, um, so we, we manage a, a huge video operation videos that probably our most important marketing asset. Yeah. If you go to YouTube, you'll find thousands and thousands of Watchbox videos, both from education and entertainment about watches to single purpose, hands-on review videos on, you know, almost every watch that we sell. And we've recently taken all that content and merged it into um, a smart TV app. So if you have a Roku or Apple TV or an Android TV device, you can go to your app store um, and download the Watchbox app. And you basically have like a Netflix for watches. It's, it's like an endless scroll of uh, watch videos by different categories, different show types. And uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how we can sort of expand, um, expand the video content that we offer and um, you know, find people who go down the rabbit hole of, of watch collecting and just get immersed in all of our video content. What past failure or project failure set you up for future success? Do you have a favorite failure? Yeah, I guess you've been around long enough. I've had, I've had, I've had a couple, um, a couple big failures. Um, I, and I guess I could go through some of them chronologically. So when I left, when I left the consulting industry, it was during the dot-com boom. And, you know, one reason I left was because I wanted to get off the road and didn't want to be traveling so much as a consultant. The other reason I left was to, you know, was to go join a dot-com and, you know, convinced I was going to make, you know, convinced that that was going to set me up financially for life. You know, remember when, when I left, uh, joined, joined the company that I joined, uh, you know, within two weeks, the options that, that I, they had given me were worth, seven figures and I wasn't able to sell them yet. By the time the lockup period expired, they were you know worth close to nothing because the market had crashed. And what was interesting about that job was that career was, you know, I joined, I joined in 2000 at the sort of height of the dot-com boom. The, um, the company I worked for, Vertical Net, which was like sort of Philadelphia's, one of Philadelphia's big um, entrance in the dot-com market. It was a public company. Valuation was bigger than GM, but the product and the business wasn't quite there. The company didn't make money. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a clear path to really earn that valuation that it had. And I stayed with the company for five years and helped it migrate from um, an internet-based kind of media site to uh, a business-to-business software, supply chain software company. And Towards the end of you know, towards the end of my stay there, we had award-winning software products that we you know we we stayed a public company and we had great product. We had you know what should have been a path to remaining remaining profitable, but our valuation was probably less than one percent of what it was at the height when we didn't have much product. So I think the lesson there was that product doesn't always win. You know, success, successful business involves. Um, in product, market fit, marketing, sales, getting everything right together, and then also also timing. It just wasn't a great time to, you know, time to to start this business. A- another lesson lesson I learned was with company I was at before before coming to uh, Godberg and Watchbox was we we were a uh, an apparel company that sold um, uniforms to nurses. So. 
the, the, it was a, another business that was a legacy catalog offline kind of business that, um, that I came in to help bring it online. And on the surface was like at the first couple of years, phenomenal success. Took a business that was, had been a uh, $50 million business, had shrunk to almost zero because they had managed the, the migration to online so poorly, 100% reliant on catalogs through the mail. And we took it from bankruptcy to back to $30 million business within a couple of years. And then 2009 hit uh, the financial crisis. And almost instantly, all of our metrics turned the other way. So where, you know, where I thought I had firm control over marketing the business, our customer acquisition costs, our, our uh, managing marketing based on lifetime value, almost everything turned upside down. You know, even though we worked in an industry that we thought was recession-proof, nursing was one of the fastest growing jobs. There was a huge nursing shortage. We, you know, we, we thought we had clear market growth for the foreseeable future, but the market turned and you know, we didn't have enough capital to, to weather it. And pretty quickly, we were scrambling to, to stay in business. So timing is another very important uh, lesson of that is that you, know, you got to be ready for when the market turns against you. And also, you have to have a backup plan. You know, I think that was probably the biggest, the, the biggest failure in that position. Probably the third story um, was when I joined Godberg to start this repair business. Again, off the bat, huge, huge growth came in, took a business from literally zero to probably a $5 million run rate in, in a year and a half with thousands of watches coming through every quarter. And, and uh, I actually really credit Danny Godberg, our, our, our founder for this. You know, he was able to help me look at the business and say, hey, while it looks like you're being successful, I don't know where the, if you're twice as big, four times as big, you don't have the path to profitability to make this a really meaningful opportunity. Let's pivot and put all of the assets that you've built by building a repair business and all the skills that you have in convincing people to send their watch to you for repair, migrate it over to something different. And can you leverage like those same marketing skills to get people to send your send their watches in the mail to sell to you? Um, where Where the margins on a $20,000 watch sale are a lot higher than the margins on a $800 watch repair cost. But, but a lot of the skills are still the same. You need to, you need to get, get the market to trust you, uh, convince people to drop their, their watch in a, in a FedEx package, sight unseen, and, uh, and have trust that they're going to get a check on the other side. And so, so that's what we did. So and that, uh, the interesting thing about that case is I didn't even realize I was failing. I, you know, I didn't even realize that that there were just much huger, much larger opportunities using the same set of skills and assets that, that we had put together until somebody you know, who was outside the business was able to sit me down and help me see that. Such a micro-specific industry that you're in, but the, the principles, the pillars can go throughout, the, throughout any industry. You're talking awareness, you have to build trust, it's timing, you need a backup plan, like the little things like that. You take those principles and you could use that in other aspects of your life. Couple more questions. I know you have a hard stop in a few minutes. What is your personal definition of success? So I think that's changed a lot over time. If you would have asked me this question when I was a kid or in my twenties, it probably would have been largely financial. It would have been, you know, I want to have X dollars. I want to have financial security. You know, I grew up in a, I grew up in a home without financial security. So being able to send the kids to college, go on vacation, be secure about retirement. 
I think that would have been my answer 20 years ago. As you get older, you get more experience. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to have have enough financial security. You realize like that's a certain amount of table stakes. But um, beyond that, you want to be doing you want to you want to be doing things that are fulfilling and, and you know hopefully impact the world around you i want to spend a lot of time with my kids my family i want to make sure you know I, I think more about them and their future than i do about me and my future now so success for me i view through i view through them um and similarly at work you know i try to look beyond me and and try to see how do i help the other people that i'm working with achieve their career career goals and then increasingly as I, as I get older, I want to start thinking about what the, uh, the future looks like for the world, you know, become a lot more interested in trying to think about what kind of causes and attention, uh, what, what kind of causes I want to give my attention to um, and dollars to as I go forward so that, so that the world we leave behind is better than, you know, the world we've got today. If you could go back and talk to that 10-year-old boy in Long Island around that dinner table, what would you tell him? So one of the things I I always try to tell, I, I still have to tell myself now, and I tell him then, um, is not to be not to be afraid afraid to make mistakes. You know, I think by nature you get called out for making mistakes as a kid, and it embarrasses you, and you don't like that feeling. So you tend you may tend to take actions or not take actions to, to avoid failure rather than make the move, take the actions to achieve success. I think people spend too much time thinking about how to avoid failure than they do thinking about what they need to do to achieve success. So I'd, I would try to convince myself to make, make more mistakes, have a shorter memory about them, you know, take the lessons away from them. Um, you know, both, both, both of our kids pay, uh, play baseball together over the years. And I think baseball is a great sport because you know, if you're the if you're the best hitter of all time, you're gonna you know you're gonna hit 400 in one year, right? You're, if you're in the 300s, you've you've got a solid career. So that means you're failing, you know, 60, 70 percent of the time, and that's a huge success rate. And you have to have a short memory because if you're a pitcher and you let up that home run, you got another batter who's coming right up right up to the plate. I, I think we need to take those lessons outside of sports and and put them on our put them in, in our, our own life. Cause I think we spend so much time worrying and obsessing over the mistakes that sometimes we lose sight of, you know, what to really do to achieve the success. Go fail and have a short memory. Yeah. I think that's a, a great place to wrap it up. Dave, uh, where can people find you online? If they're looking for you or watchbox. Find us online at uh, the watchbox.com or you can download, um, download our app on the, uh, iOS app store, or now are your favorite smart TV app store for, uh, for, for luxury watch videos. And, um, and you know, anybody who wants to reach out, you know, find me personally on LinkedIn. Perfect. Dave, thank you for joining us. Wish you much success. I appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thanks Joe. Best of luck with the podcast. Honored to be uh, one of the first guests and uh, looking forward to like hearing all the others.